You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I speak with CEO of EcoTrader, Carla Malloy, about the farmland investing opportunity. With rising inflation and Bill Gates now being America's top farmland owner with a $690 million investment, we want to understand the nuts and bolts of the $9 trillion asset class. If you, like me, are worried about the inflationary impact on your portfolio, you don't want to miss out on this one. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Carla Malloy. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hey, 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 you're listening to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Carter Malloy. Carter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stig. I'm excited to be here. So, Carter, I'm really excited for you to join us because inflation is something that everyone seems to be concerned about these days. Uh, one of the many reasons why we wanted to, to speak with you here today, and also because we study billionaires, that's the name of the show, and Bill Gates, he reportedly owns 242,000 acres of farmland. So, a lot of things to cover here, a lot of things that really made us really interested into covering this topic. This is the first time we ever talked about farmland and, and what a time to, to do that. So our audience are typically stock investors. And right now, like I mentioned before, inflation is something that we are concerned about. Could you talk to us about the investment thesis for diversifying into farmland if you're worried about inflation? First to establish, it is a large asset class. There's $3 trillion of this stuff in the United States. So is a very big asset class. And you're exactly right. I think most people are stock investors first and foremost. I, I personally, that's my background. I spent a dozen years in, in equities, most recently at a, at a long short fund. And uh, I, I love investing in, in equities. But in, in the background, I had been buying and selling farmland. My, my dad's a farmer, mom entrepreneur, and always was just intrigued by farmland, the financial performance, despite the really difficult transaction experiences that, that are out there. But one of the reasons that it has always been attractive I believe will remain so, is that it can serve as a hedge against inflation. And the reason is fairly simple. It produces a core component of inflation. Food comes off of farmland. That's one of the ways that we measure inflation. So over time, the data will show you that farmland has actually served as a similar, if not better, hedge to inflation than gold. Difference with farmland and gold is that farmland produces income as well. Gold does not produce income. You're holding a commodity and hoping somebody else is willing to pay more than you did for it. With farmland, it is an actual productive asset that produces rents for, for the investor. Importantly, while it can serve as a great inflation hedge, and, and again, the historical data will show you that, it is a really fascinating standalone investment, right? So the underlying reasons to invest in farmland, the list is long. There are a myriad of reasons to invest, including it. It's not really diversified to other asset classes. It has put up some really great historical risk-adjusted returns, right? So low double-digit type of returns with low volatility as well. So you don't see it whip around like a lot of other asset classes, including stocks. So there are a lot of really great standalone reasons to invest in farmland. And oh, hey, by the way, it can also serve as an inflation hedge. So, so yeah, we are, we are seeing lots of interest on our platform and demand growing on our platform as well from all, all types of investors. And some of those are certainly folks that are worried about inflation. I think we're seeing it more and more in the news. You may have seen yesterday, Deutsche Bank came out with a big call and a really large concerning headline around their concerns on inflation. 
Whether or not those hold true over time, we will see. But again, we're excited about the asset class either way. And we're discussing some of the mechanics that, that drive the asset, but I want to quickly mention supply and demand. It is, it is very important to understand that as well, that we only have so much farmland and it's shrinking. So in the US, as an example, farmland trust here, or nonprofit here in the US shows that we lose about three acres per minute of farmland. It's a staggering amount is disappearing due to development and a number of other reasons. So supply shrinking. On the other side, demand growing. We have more people to feed. And on farms, we, we grow food and also some fuel and some fiber. And the demands for those things continue to increase around the world. So the supply and demand setup is pretty straightforward to understand as to why the, the asset class can be attractive over long periods of time. And then again, on, on top of that, inflation is also a really interesting reason to look at the asset class. I don't want to, to catch you off guard here, Carter. So whenever you talk about the shrinking demand of, of farmland, is that being replaced somewhere else? Like, is it so that it's shrinking with three acres per minute in, in the States, but then it's growing with five acres a minute, I don't know, globally? It's a really good question. We do see places where there's rainforest destruction, as an example, to create farmland. That's a rather unfortunate tragedy. But throughout the world, the farmland tillable acres per capita is the way to look at that. And same thing there. You're, you're seeing pressure uh, on a global scale as well. So the US statistic, there, there's just more data on US farmland is the reason I call that out. But, but that is a global phenomenon as well. All right. So let's talk about the business model for us as investors. As much as I understand the top-down thesis behind it in time of inflation, my first question is, I guess, not just for you, but for everyone we have on the show, and in anything we talk about in terms of investing is, how do I get paid? So with farmland, just more to understand the business model, could you talk to us through the cycle of the different cash flows? Absolutely so. And I think it's probably a pretty important question. How does this work? How do I actually make money here? With farmland as a general statement, investors have made money two ways. Number one is the asset itself appreciating. So the land growing in value over time. Number two is the farmer pays rent. So in, in the most simple version for row crops, and I'll, I'll delineate between row crops and, and permanent crops here in a moment, but in the more simple version of row crops, it's things that you plant every year. So rice, cotton, soybeans, corn, very simply the landowner or the investor, and this is about 40% of US land is, is absentee owned, meaning that it's, it's uh, not, the, not the farmer that owns it. The landowner charges the farmer a simple rent. Similar to if you own an apartment building or a commercial building and you had a tenant, you own the building, they pay rent. That is the, the same thing here. Albeit, it is a little more simplified in that the farmer usually pays rent once or twice a year. It is a very straightforward agreement. Default rates and vacancy rates are extremely, extremely low, just exceptionally low across the industry. And uh, so it's a very simple, straightforward relationship between the farmer and the landowner. So again, farmers paying rent, so you have a cash component of the investment. And then the land itself appreciates over time. We've, we've seen that over, over long periods of time, call it around 6% a year over the last 30, 50 years is what land has appreciated annually. So the underlying value that can compound underneath you, that being the land, the asset, and then the rent coming off the farm. What I've just described is row crops. That's the majority of farmland in the US. Most investment portfolios tend to be majority row crop farmland, but then there is permanent cropland without at risk of becoming a little too complicated. I do want to bring this up as well because it's a different type of investment. Permanent crops are things that grow on vines, sometimes bushes, most often trees. So almonds, walnuts, pistachios, pecans, apples, pears, oranges, 
things that grow on trees. As the investor, you usually own that land underneath it, but you also own the trees. So if you own almond trees, as an example, you are now exposed to the commodity itself, right? Because you own, you own the trees, you own the land, and so you are paid more based on the productivity of that land. So that, that being the number of almonds or the pounds of almonds that come off of that tree, and then the price that is being paid for those almonds in market. So I'm sticking with this almond example for a moment. It helps illustrate a little bit of nuances and complexities with permanent crops, but they are also very interesting as an investment vehicle. You own the land, you own the trees. The trees take a couple of years, maybe five to get to full productivity. They're baby trees, right? They have to grow up before they begin to, to shed fruit. And at that point, then you're paid on the yield of those trees times the commodity price, but you are married to that tree. You've planted a tree, you've waited for it to grow. And if the price of almonds between now and three, four, five years from now, if it goes up dramatically, great. If it goes down, that's also a risk you take as an investor. So you do have some commodity exposure when you own permanent crops. Now to the investor, what this means is fluctuations in value or the fluctuations in income for permanent crops tend to be a little wider. So those almond trees are going to give you more variability in income, but over a long period of time, they tend to show a higher absolute cash flow to the investor. So for every $100 you've invested, you tend to make more annually in cash off of those trees than you do off of the row crop where you're growing rice, as an example. So that's the, the basic premise is for row crops, primarily looking for quality land that appreciates, and then you get a little bit of cash on top. For permanent crops, you are getting more cash and a little less appreciation because while the land value is going up over time, it can go up over time, the trees can go down over time because they have a useful life. And with almonds, that may be 20, 25 years. With olives, that may be 75 years. But nonetheless, the trees, their value does go down over time. So, so you have a little less appreciation, more cash flow. Again, that's describing permanent crops like fruits and nuts. With row crops, you tend to have more appreciation, a little less cash flow. Both have ended up over long periods of time, again, producing that 10, 11, 12% type of compounded annual return or average annual return to the investor over long periods of time. And, and done so, these assets have done so with a lot less volatility than comparable assets like the S&P 500 or commercial real estate, where the returns over long periods of times are similar or a little lower than farmland. But farmland does not tend to whip around in value like those things do. That's why we're so excited about farmland. Risk-adjusted returns can be very attractive. So going back to what you said about the difference between row and permanent crops and the timing on the cash flows, let's just at least to make it simple for me, I'm, I'm sure the listeners follow this example much better than I do, is that's, your, that's the dividend payment compared to like the capital gain on, on your stock. For like a better example, so would it be something to be said about timing that compared to taxes? Like because one would be taxed immediately, is that how it works? And then capital gains, you can sort of like push that as a long-term capital gain or how does that work? I'm not a tax advisor and this is not tax advice. For, for most people, it tends to work just like stocks do. You've hit the nail on the head. Your dividends and or with a LLC, it's distributions, but same thing, right? The cash coming off tends to be taxed as, as ordinary income, just as it usually would be coming off of stocks. And then at time of sale, the, the money you've made off of appreciation tends to be taxed as a capital gain. So very similar to, to stocks and for most people. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. 
As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Interesting. To another point that you mentioned before about 10, 11%, you know, that's as stock investors with the interest rate level we have right now, you know, we can't help but get a bit excited. And so the other thing is that I went to to website and there was one thing, well, there was a lot of interesting things, but there was just one thing where I was like, I really need to speak to Kara about this because it said that with these 10, I think 11.5%, that's the number I found in the white paper, there hasn't been a down year since 1990. So... To me, with the volatility I'm, I'm used to in the stock market, it seems, well, almost too good to be true. Could you talk to us about how do we measure the return on farmland as an asset class? And, and also tell me, is that statement true? That statement is true. The problem we have with farmland is that there is not a lot of data. Despite how big it is, it's a pretty closely held asset. So that's why we use that, that reference date of 1990. That's when the data collection became far more professionalized with NC Reef, N-C-R-E-I-F, or Nake Reef is what a lot of people call it. It's a private equity measuring stick effectively. So it's used for measuring private equity performance in apartments and commercial real estate and also farmland. And so there have been major contributors to that now for, for 30 plus years. And that's what we refer to often for the data. 
The USDA has some data that is similar and goes back further in time. It's survey-based, so the accuracy is not going to be quite as great in most cases, but it would also support that same notion. You are right that since 1990, we have not had any big down years in, in farmland. The statement is also somewhat true. If you look at bonds as an example, or fixed income, it tends to be pretty consistent performing over time. And, and that's okay. The trade-off you're making, and the reason that statement can be true, is because this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. You are not going to go buy a piece of farmland and turn around the next year and sell it for double or some other astronomical gain. But you can do if you're out jockeying for individual stocks or playing in venture capital or taking on more risky assets. You can earn some zeros and you can earn some, some 10Xs, sure. That's great in, in some of those asset classes. With farmland, we, we kind of aim to be the opposite, right? It's all about compounding over time. Call it old school Buffett mentality of, of buying quality assets that are, that are simple and allowing your money to work for you rather than constantly chasing the hottest new thing. And so that's really what we're about with farmland is, is compounding of capital, trying to be as risk averse as we can be, preservation of wealth, that type of thing. So we are, we are never out arguing, put your whole portfolio in this, not at all. What we see it as is an interesting thing to add to a portfolio for diversification. And there are some great white papers on this online outside of our research, uh, some third-party validation put out by Nuveen, TIAA, Prudential. So some very large funds that are also active in the sector and have some great research out there that you can find online uh, with a few searches, or we, have them, we reference them on, on our website as well. So we are talking about positive returns here, but there have been some years that performed significantly better than, than others. Whenever I look at some of the years where the returns haven't been doing that well, 2001 sticks out. What is that? 1%, 2%, and then 9 there was a, a big slide compared to 2008. I can't but help but, but think, well, I remember what the stock market did those years. Was that just investors just pulling out because now they were getting afraid? I would, is that what happened? It's often related more to farmers than investors. They are the extreme majority of, of buyers and sellers in our industry within farmland. And so often it's a barometer on, on their healthiness and the way they're feeling. And, and you see that similar lower return period. There's a big commodities boom in 2010 to 2014, call it. And you see for 2015 to 2020, it slowed down quite a bit as commodity prices were, were under pressure and there was less activity and less appreciation or, or growth in the asset. And then we, we have been seeing it really pick up here again in the last six to 12 months as commodity prices have, have begun to rally again. So it, it does tend to move in those, those longer cycles. So let's talk a bit more about inflation. I can't help but going, going back to that. With the numbers you see coming out right now, it's just, it just seems like it's on everyone's mind. A conversation that I, I hear among investors right now is that given the interest rate levels right now, of course, we also have fear interest rate rising because of inflation. A lot of people are talking about, let's take on debt. You know, why wouldn't we do that? Because right now it's cheap to borrow. It might be more expensive shortly. And if we have inflation on the way, a lot of that debt can be inflated away. You use little to no debt for your investments on AcreTrade. Why is that? A big part of that is just conservatism. I think that is one of the great appeals of the asset class is that you know, we, we said this a moment ago, that compounding of capital over time and being conservative with this portion of your investments. And, and that's a mentality that we maintain here internally. And I think, frankly, is, is maintained throughout the entire farmland system in the United States. So loan to value or LTV is a term or an acronym used throughout real estate investing, whether that's commercial or residential or, or farmland. And, and that is if you have $100 worth of real estate asset 
and you have $50 of debt, you've got a 50% loan to value. If you have 80% loan or $80 of, of debt and the $20 of, of equity or cash you put in, then that LTV is 80, right? So you got 80% debt. So when people buy a home, they usually buy it around that 80% mark. That is very levered. And what that means is if the price of the home goes down 20%, assuming you have to sell, you've lost all your money. That is not a favorable outcome. And, and sure, that, that debt amplification can improve returns. And, and we're not completely debt averse. And I'll, I'll describe that in a moment. But throughout the farming ecosystem, the loan to values today are something like 13 or 14% LTV throughout US farmland. It's staggeringly low. And so very unlevered asset class. I think that is also good for the health of the asset class because in, in times of problems, in problematic economic times, there's not the necessity to sell because the bank's not calling most of the farmers and farmland owners because they don't have a bank. And so that, that is a very positive thing for the larger ecosystem. Now, back to AcreTrader and how we approach the asset. With row crops, we almost never put any debt on row crops. And part of the reason there is the cash flows aren't that big anyway. And so what we want to be cautious of is if there's a hiccup in cash flow for any reason, we don't want to have to refi or have a bank chase us or anything like that. And, and again, it's throughout the industry, it's very uncommon that that occurs, but still, we want to be cautious. With permanent crops, where, as we discussed earlier, if you're planting trees, the banks are very, oftentimes, they tend to be excited about lending against that because the LTVs are still low and you can go get some debt to plant the trees, as an example. And even then, though, the, the loan to values tend to be 50% or lower, which is lower than you'll see it on just about any publicly marketed real estate deals. So throughout the asset class, there is real conservatism. That is part of the reason why you don't see as much volatility in farmland prices is because the leverage is not there to swing it around. And, and that's something that we, we frankly like. I understand that, you know, speaking of, of that conservatism and that mindset, you know, here on the podcast, we are heavily influenced by Warren Buffett and his investment philosophy. He's famous for saying that if you focus on the downside, the upside will take care of itself. So let's talk a lot more about the downside. And the listener out there might be thinking, oh my God, Stig, you've been talking for so long about all the inflation and all the other things that you're so worried about. But like in this climate, like we, as always, we should be focusing on the downside, but definitely right now. And so let's talk about the various risks. Let's start with crop risk. So as investors in farmland, do we have any crop risk from a, say, a bad harvest or is the rent fixed? For row crops that we discussed earlier, the rent is typically fixed. In some contracts, lease, lease contracts, there may be a fixed base rent and then uh, some flex upward if the farmer has a good year. Like, for, like right now where commodity prices are, the farms we have flex leases will likely see some upside to the lease this year. But those, those leases tend to be fixed and they tend to be at least half paid upfront. What that means is the farmer gives you the money before they put a seed in the ground. So if that farmer does not pay you, that tenant does not pay you in honor of the contract, then you have the ability to go out and find another farmer before the season begins. So that's, I mentioned earlier that default rates tend to be fairly low. That's why. Vacancy rates low also. So occupancy very, very high. And the reason is pretty straightforward. Most farmers want economies of scale. They already own the tractor and the equipment and they've got the labor force and the software. Having more land to farm gives them more buying power to go out and buy more seed or inputs or whatever that may be to run their business. So, so we do see very low vacancy and default rates. Those things can happen though. Those are still a risk, certainly. The farmer in the back 
if they pay half the rent up front in March, in some cases, in many cases, they pay the full rent in March, but in some cases, they, they may pay half up front. They can still default in the back half. There's a contract. They owe you the money, but, but that can happen. Beyond that, so, so that's, that's row crops where it's fairly straightforward lease agreements and you look for good tenants that pay their bills on time and, and most really do. If you buy a lower quality farm, that could be a, a risk that it won't appreciate as well. If you buy a farm prone to flooding and it floods, you know, it's next to a river and it floods often, then the farmers may not want to rent it from you. And so that may hurt your income. If you buy a farm without water, there's a lot of risks. <laughs> we really want to have water and I'm staying on row crops and I'll go over to permanent crops and the risk there in a moment. With row crop farmland here in, in Arkansas, where I live, at Mississippi River Delta, getting water onto your crops really does matter. You need to have wells or pumps or reclamation systems or have access to water to pump it on during those really hot summer days. But you also need to be able to get the water off. Going up to Illinois and Iowa, some of the most amazing soils in the world, actually, and they have water problems. Of, it's too much water and, and the water stays on the farm. That's also can be ruinous to a crop. If the things, your soybeans are sitting underwater for two weeks, then they don't have any more soybeans. And, and so making sure you get water off there. I'm giving a long-winded answer to diligence is incredibly important and buying high quality assets is very important. And, and if you don't, then the risks increase pretty meaningfully. There is what's called dry crop land, land that is not irrigated. So think Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, especially more of the center parts of those states where you're, you're relying on the weather and, and rain cycles. And that's fine. There, there can be some attractive investments there, but it's certainly a new dynamic when the farmers have to do rain dances to you know, hope that you get rain some years, because that, that will affect the farmer's outcomes. If you have a drought or if you have a flood, that can be a, a, a negative for, for them and ultimately for the landowner and the value of the land. So long-winded answer to, there are certainly risks in the world of, world of row crop, but again, without running leverage, it's not like we're seeing row crop farmland go to zero, right? So I think Nebraska is a good example. They, they did have the most recent measurable bear market. It got super, super heated. Some of the, the prices there in the mid 20 teens, like probably 2012, 2014, like crazy speculations, prices went up big. And after that, they had a subsequent five-year period where prices went down. The value of the land went down something like 17%. But end to end, the investors, remember, they were still getting the rent check from the farmer. So the investors nominally made a couple of points over the, the life of that investment. So when we speak to risk, especially on row crop, it's seldom that you hear somebody getting wiped out, right? That is, which is a real risk that you, you take and and investing in a lot of other assets. So, so I want to make sure I contextualize the, the risk here. You definitely did that, Carter. And if I, can, if I can try and then relate it back to stocks, or I get in this case, real estate, which is, I'm definitely not saying that I know a lot about real estate, even though that compared to my agricultural knowledge, is, it, it, it seems vast to me right now. But as a landlord, I don't want bad tenants. I don't want tenants who are like messing up the place. And you know, that's the last thing you want as a landlord. I'm thinking if, if I have a tenant as a landowner, perhaps I don't want them to grow potatoes because they would just suck all the nutrients out of the soil. Like, is there such thing as, is that how it is? Or is it just outlined in the contract, this is what you can or, or can't do? The contract's certainly there to protect you. And you specifically, it sounds like you do know a lot about agriculture. You specifically <laughs> hit nutrient mining is, is what it's called when, it, when a farmer comes in and runs the, the wrong kinds of crops back to back that are bad for your soil. And there are guards against that in relationships and in contracts to, to avoid that occurring. So I'm going to clean up a little bit on risk because I, I still want to make sure to spell out that there are, with permanent crops, there are a little more risks, as, as we discussed earlier. 
because you're exposed to the commodity price. So if the commodity price goes down, or if you have a bad year of yields, those things can influence your income in a more meaningful way. But, but interestingly, you, you started this conversation with Warren Buffett's philosophy around focusing on the downside and the upside takes care of itself. And I uh, wanted to bring up, while his name was mentioned a moment ago, he has one of my more favorite quotes on farmland, which is, I believe I'm going to botch the quote, sorry, but Buffett quote on farmland was something to the tune of, I would rather own all the farmland in the United States than all the gold in the entire world. I thought that was a pretty great contextualization of, of where his mindset is on the asset. That's a great quote. Fantastic. Because as you were saying, you know, it produces something for you. That's what it's, what it's all about. So, Carter, shifting gears here a bit, as I understand it, whenever you invest with Acre Trader, what happens is that you're creating an LLC for each piece of farmland. And then as an investor, you buy small pieces of that LLC. So each share is worth one-tenth of an acre. So if you buy 100 shares, you own 10 acres. To me, that feels, feels good. It feels like if I can relate it to something else, like it would be like an ETF. I actually own that stock, even though that, that ETF would blow up. So I'm, I'm not trying to bet against you in, in any way as I'm saying this, but for me as an investor, I would say, well, I, it's good. I know I own this land in Nebraska, whatever that, that might be. But what happens if AcreTrader defaults? Because you are the person and your team securing like all the practical details, managing the farmland. So I guess a word that I might legally have the right to piece of land with a bunch of other investors who might know as little as me about farmland, what's going to happen without you and your team? In the unlikely event that me and our team are not here, and first to clarify as a company, we've just closed our Series A funding. We've raised $18 million as a business. We have most of that still in the bank. We are conservative by nature, if you couldn't tell from the conversation already. We, are going to be, we plan to be here for a very, very long time. In the event that we are not here, so each LLC is governed, right? So as, as you mentioned a moment ago, LLC, so call it Acre Trader 150, it goes out and owns a piece of land and the investors own that LLC. Our management company is a manager of that LLC and that's our relationship with the LLC, but we don't own it. The investors do. And each of those LLCs are governed by a set of documents. It instruct what is to occur with that LLC and, and the outcomes that are sought. And there is specific language in there of if Acre Trader gets hit by a bus, what happens? To make sure those LLCs are, there is continuity there, there is continued management of the land, there is legal representation for the LLC. So that's all spelled out in the event that we are no longer here. The investors should have the same experience. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 
As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. Let's talk about disruption. And going back to Warren Buffett again, that was actually not the plan with the original, original outline that we discussed before, but now we're talking about Buffett. And we always want to use that as an excuse to talk more about him. So we have some hardcore Warren Buffett followers, including me and, and the other hosts here on the show. Warren Buffett recently has his annual shareholders meeting in Nebraska, of all places, uh, that we just talked about. He showed a presentation before the Q&A session where he showed the 30 most valuable companies in 1989. And then he, he fast forward to today and then showed that list of the 30 most valuable companies. And there were no repeats. You know, they were, none of the companies were, were on the same list. And so to me, that was just, I think it was an eye-opener in, in many ways because we have talked here on the show about how companies have shoulder and shoulder tenure in the S&P 500. And so you know, one of the things I really like about farmland as an asset class is that at least at the, f- at the face of it, it seems like there is less disruption. But also, as I've started to read up on farmland as an asset class, I just thought of you know, so many different potential disruptors just popped up. Global warming could be one. New types of fertilizer could be another. GMO crops. Could you please discuss how we as investors should look at disruption in farmland investing? You name the big one there, which is global warming. It is really affecting farmland today. It's affecting farming regions and farming zones. For the most part, you can adopt practices to that. But in some places, it is, it is uh, more threatening. I was just talking about water in California. That is also true, Arizona, New Mexico, California. When it's warmer outside and there's less snowpack on the mountains, there is less water that comes off those mountains when the snow melts. And the rivers have less water coming downstream to your farm. That is a material threat. And again, that's why water diligence is so incredibly important. Likewise, in, in dry seasons and in, in drought years, uh, again, water becomes really, really important. So we are actively seeing the impacts of that already today. And it's something to be very aware of. Invest in a farm for 10 years. How much different will this region look in 10 years? And for that next person who's purchasing it for 10 or 20 or 50 years, you know, will they be comfortable if that region is stable? And so that is a, an important consideration when, when looking at, at farmland, certainly. Beyond that, advances in technology, whether that is 
through seed genetics or biology, that some really cool things happening there, or artificial intelligence and machine learning and computer vision. There are some really cool things happening on farms today to improve technology, to reduce the waste and improve the profit margin of the farmer. Those are a good thing. We like improved yields. We like to improve profit margins for the farmers. That's the positive for our tenants. And so ultimately should be positive for us as well. I like that you said that. I don't know if I'm, if I'm too much of a value investor. I tend to be very uh, pessimistic because one way to look at those technological changes is that, you know, it's good. Like we get better yield, but we're not looking at the index here. We're looking at a specific project. And I guess what, one thing that I would be concerned about is that I would invest in this piece of, of farmland. I would get a low cap rate because it's a class A. I'm sure if it's called class A, this is like from commercial real estate, I, w- I would say that. I'll get a low cap rate, but you know, it's, it's really good with irrigation or, or whatnot. And then Bill Gates, we also talked about before, his, his team is doing a lot of research in terms of developing crops that really can resist droughts, which is a big thing in, in Africa, for instance. And so a lot of that in Africa, they have all kinds of issues like with fertilizers. And even if they could afford it, they can't get credit. I'm trying to reel myself back in here. So since this is on a per project basis, is there such a thing as this is good as a whole, but perhaps it's not good for, for our project? It's limited. I think as a whole, look, like especially with Africa, something like 10% of the world or upwards of 10% is malnourished. So my goodness, yes, we, we want to see continued improvements to, to be able to grow crops in places where it's difficult to grow to improve the livelihood of people around the world. But beyond that, remember, we have more and more people and oh yeah, they are consuming more. And then we have a growing middle class. Think, think about China alone and the imports necessary for them to grow their massive herd of hogs is a big deal for, for agriculture. And so not just growing number of mouths to feed around the world and, and people to support, but also growing consumption among that population. So we discussed earlier supply and demand, right? Finite amount of, of supply of land that is shrinking. Demand for the goods on that land is growing. There is certainly a third factor that you're speaking to right now, which is yields which is how much can you squeeze off of an acre of land? And we really saw revolutions in this over the last 30 to 50 years, dramatic improvements in yield around seed genetics in particular and breeding and GMO to improve the amount that's produced on, on a particular acre of land. That's a good thing for that piece of land, like you described. When you look at the entire asset class, it does that hold it back, right? Because you're, that's effectively capping out your price. Over time, inflation would show you it's not. And beyond that, you know, again, the, those improvements we've seen over the last 30, 50 years have slowed in terms of the, the yield per acre on, on certain commodities. It's harder and harder, incrementally harder and harder to squeeze out gains is the best way to say that, right? There's only physically so much you can actually grow on a, on a square of land. And so those are material considerations. And as a whole, we, we like continued improvement in overall yields, and especially as it relates to what we view as the more modern farmer and the types of farmers we partner with. The ones that are adopting these software on-farm technologies to improve their own yields and their own profit margins. Uh, and that way we feel if we partner with the right farmers, then we do that much better. Let's say right now we, we are 8 billion people on the planet. And let's say that we're going to grow to 16. That's not double the amount of food that needs to be produced. As rich as you get, you eat more calories, but you also eat, say, for instance, you need meat from cattle and that has a six to one ratio. So you would need to feed that cattle with six times the amount of calorie that goes out in, in the other end. So it's not a one to one ratio. And I think, and you probably know the exact numbers with hogs, it's like three to one or something like catalyst at the very top. But regardless of what you're looking at, you know, it, it's not a one to one basis. So we're looking at a lot more production that needs to be gone online. 
So the audience out there might be thinking, well, why is Dick so interested in farmland? Like he, he's been running this podcast for, what, seven years now, and he never talked about farmland before. And so I already talked about, you know, inflation is one reason why I'm looking at it. Bill Gates, you know, as someone we follow closely, like his investment to farmland. But the reason for it is actually a bit more anecdotal. And I sort of like wanted to bring that in transition then into, into another question. Because earlier this year, I had a business case presented to me, and it was a farm in Saskatchewan. With a, they had a reliable and long-term tenant. The landowner wanted to retire, and his sons weren't interested in taking over the family business. And so, as the audience can probably tell, I don't know close to anything about agriculture. But whenever a case like that is presented to me, I'm thinking, well, credited premium, that's one thing I'm thinking about. I'm thinking that it might be a motivated seller, which could also give me an interesting superior return. So in this specific case, um, the landowner was looking for someone to, to take over, and he didn't want a big corporation to take ownership of that. I thought to myself, well, perhaps I need to educate myself more into, into this field, and perhaps I needed to find more motivated sellers. I need to, to find other places for that liquidity premium, which could be farmland in North America. But I also think that as more as I've been digging into this, it seems like perhaps that was an exception to the rule. It might not seem as scalable as I thought it would be. Because it does seem like it's, it's quite professionally managed, farmland as an asset class. We previously talked about, Carter, that it's a $3 trillion asset class in the US alone, $9 trillion globally. Could you talk to us about the different players in the market, the market share? And if this story, like my personal story is, is it scalable for a motivated investor? To put a wrapper on that previous conversation, you mentioned the, the necessity of so much more input to, to provide a, an ounce or a pound of meat. I think in America, people are used to eating protein three meals a day and probably have as a beef jerky in the afternoon between. That is not the way that most of the world eats their meals. It sounds tasty. Many of them are moving that way, but that requires real capital. And so as you're seeing global GDP growth and a rise of middle class, that protein demand is certainly an interesting part of the demand side story for the case for farmland. So something to certainly pay attention to. And I love some of those stats you were naming earlier. To hop into is there enough of a market here? You know, and why, why aren't we talking about farmland much? I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. It's hard. For most people, it's impossible. If you want to buy a piece of farmland, you've got to go out to a county you've probably never heard of, meet with a broker you've certainly never met, plop down a million dollars, oh, and now you get to manage a farm. That is just not a thing that most people in their right mind would do if they even could. And most can't do that either. That was really the, the reason why we built this business is to provide people another option. So on our platform, it's easy, right? It takes a few minutes to do it all electronically inside of our application to go invest in farmland and you can put in $20,000 rather than $2 million. And, and then it's passive after that. We take care of the investment, the management, payments, facilitation of, of leasing, insurance, you know, end to end, we are, we are there to support the investors and, and farmers both to reduce the, the load to, to near zero for those investors. So it's truly passive. So first, sort of naming off the, you called out the, the difficulties of land investing, and that's, that's exactly why we are here as a business. Beyond that, it is a closely held asset, right? So you, that's the other reason you don't hear much about it in the financial news. One is, it's really hard to get involved. And two is, is it's mostly closely held. There is now something like $35 billion of private equity. So formal private equity in farmland, that's, that's up 10x or so over the last decade. There's a lot of growth in professional investing, but to contextualize that 30 billion, they were talking about over $3 trillion asset class. So still like 1% is those, those private equity funds. And then you have large 
individual holders, like you'd mentioned, Bill Gates and certainly other renowned investors active in the asset class, but it still represents a tiny fraction of the asset class. Most of it is owned by farmers and within farming communities or by individual investors or people that have inherited that farmland. There is real active liquidity in the market and that's growing. So 50 to $100 billion of it trades hands every year. So as a company or, or as an industry of farmland investing, it does not seem that there is any discernible impact uh, from the buying action within the industry and take a really, really long time for that to, to matter, in our opinion. Wow. 50 to 100 billion. You know, it's, uh, you also have a background, as you mentioned before, as an equity analyst. But it's, it's not a lot. <laughs> it's it actually right. a very low volume. Warren Buffett would probably be proud because he would be like, yeah, you're trading real businesses, so it should be low. Um, coming from the stock market, it's like, oh my God, that's a slow day. Again, we have to compare this $3 trillion asset class. So of course, it's not a one-to-one basis. But if we say the US global market cap for stocks are what, $4 trillion, you know, it's just yeah, something for an investor to, to consider uh, if they don't like that volatility. One of the things that's been interesting and exciting for us as investors to observe here is the increasing democratization of asset classes through new investing platforms, for instance, like AcreTrader. Previously, we've talked multiple times with our friends over at CrowdStreet, which is a commercial real estate platform. And we also twice called with Masterworks, which is an investing platform that allows investors to buy into a fractional CS artwork. And so I'm definitely not going to say that it's, it's the same. Like It's the same in the sense that you can, you can typically invest for a lot less than you otherwise would. And people like you, Carter, makes it a lot easier for for investors to invest in those asset classes. Because previously, it is primarily high net worth individuals. And you, of course, have a lot of high net worth individuals and major companies, of course, too, in that industries. But one of the things that I've learned from listening to the interview that, that my co-host Trey Lockerbie did with Masterworks is that the CEO said, we're the biggest player in, in artwork. And I was like, what? <laughs> well, I never heard that. Because they pull so, so much money from their investors that they're actually the biggest buyer now, and also because they have to put that money to work all the time. I thought about how does that apply to, to AcreTrader? So I've heard that you had close to $100 million on the management. Please correct me if I'm wrong in that ballpark. And I can't help but think if AcreTrader will drive down yields, if not today, then in years to come due to price competition, also because it's not as liquid as we also talked about before. So Keeping that in mind, and I know it's going to be like a long-winded question, but I also read on, on your website that you only invest in 1% of the land you review, which I presume would be the best investments. And as an investor, of course, I like that because you know, I, I, like, I only get presented the very best projects. But I'm also thinking with that amount of money come into it, giving the low amount of liquidity and only having like a small sliver of the market, are you driving down yields already? Firm no today. I think if we were buying a few billion dollars of land a year, then that may be a consideration. Today, let's fast forward to next year. Let's say in 2022, we buy half of a billion dollars of, of farmland. So, so 500 million on maybe 100 billion that's sold that year. We would be 0.5% of the total market of buyers. So it's highly unlikely we would affect outcomes or, or prices or, or yields throughout the industry uh, with that. Now, again, if we're buying $5 billion of farmland a year, then that, that may become a different story. Although I would imagine at that type of volume, we would likely be in other countries and other types of, of farmland rather than the strict guidelines we have today. As the listeners can probably tell, 
I've been very interested in farmland this year. I, I haven't made any any investments for different reasons. I chose not to invest in that project in Canada, also because I think I've said repeatedly I I know very little about this. And and again, buying a piece of a farmland through someone like you compared to actually being the landowner in Saskatchewan, where I've, I've never been. By the way, it's just very different. I just couldn't help but be interested in that. And so, so I, I thought about different asset classes, giving everything we talked about, and, and not just for, for our listeners, but also for me personally. And a lot of those, the investing platforms that we, we talk about here on the show, but also because we are a US show, of course, that's available for accredited US investors only. So we have a lot of wealthy international listeners, and I can't help but ask, why is it so difficult to get access to investments like AcreTrade? Because I, w- I would imagine that might be a legal thing, probably more than, than you guys impose. But also even you still have affluent US citizens who might be interested, but might not qualify for being a quote unquote accredited investor. So why is it so hard? A number of reasons. One is compliance. That's, that's the biggest one. And it's something that we take incredibly seriously. Today, we allow accredited US investors only on the website. And, and that is a someone here in the US basically that is accredited. Accredited means you make two or $300,000 a year, or you have a million dollar net worth, excluding your residence, or you have a professional designation like you're an investment advisor, or you have your series seven as a professional investor, if you will. The reason for that, and some companies take a different approach. Some companies allow international investors as well into their, their individual deals. We today do not for simple reason of compliance in that you have to be, that's a whole other podcast talking about compliance. It's something we are just ultra risk averse on because we don't want to put any investor's capital at unnecessary risk. And we view that as an unnecessary risk for a lot of people involved. Now, we will be opening up to individual countries as we go forward. We do like speaking to those international investors. We can accommodate them if they want to, if they're making large investments, they want to acquire a whole farm as an example. It's something that we, we do quite a bit of work on. If somebody just says, hey, look, I want to buy my own farm and have you guys manage it, then we can work with folks outside of the country. We love the conversation. We, we'd be happy to have it. And uh, again, bring it to more international people, especially Denmark's dig. We're coming for you. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, our, our, our last major podcast host actually invested on the platform. And so uh, we, we hope to have you someday soon as well. Right. Well, you're putting a lot of pressure on me, but it sounds like I need to buy the <laughs> no, actual no, no. farm because I can't just as a accredited Danish investor invest. That's interesting because you know, being in Denmark, I'm sure that some of the other listeners would feel the same way, like surrounded by farmland, but we don't have the same critical mass as you do in the US. So we don't have a, we're the size of Maryland, right? So we don't have like a platform for Danish farmland where you can go in and invest for $200,000 or whatever. Like it would be like, yeah, you have to come with a, your briefcase of money and be like, yeah, I'm going to buy the farm. By the way, I don't have no clue how to, how to do that. So for those reasons, and, and also because of, of language, a lot of people are looking towards the US and I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a great product. Oh, by the way, I can't. I don't have access to yeah. it. So I really appreciate that you shed some light on that. I, I'm sure that's something that, or I know that's something some of our listeners have been, have been asking about. You said the word earlier, democratization, right? The idea is to open it up for everyone to have access. And so our goals are not just to be accredited US investors only by any means. And also, and you said put pressure on you, I want to be clear. If you call us, we do not have salespeople. We have investor education folks on staff and they are here to help share information, but we are not a a sales organization. That is is just not not how we operate. With that said, 
kind of laid on us because as we're rounding off the show here, we definitely would like to give you the opportunity to to tell the audience where they can learn more about you, but perhaps as important or even more important about AcreTrader. First, go to AcreTrader.com. That's, uh, there's a wealth of information there. For us as a company, we have three core commitments, and that is access, liquidity, and transparency within this industry. That last word is really key. And I, I think you have learned that. Others will learn that as they work with us and, and get to know us. Beyond that, what really sets us apart as a company is the intense diligence our team is doing here every day, all day, the expertise within our team, the transparency we provide externally, as I had mentioned, the network that we have. I mean, our, our farm team alone in the first quarter, to give you an example, made over a thousand, had over a thousand connected calls with farmers and landowners, qualified calls with individuals here that could be partners or farmers or sellers of farmland. And we only did a handful of deals. Again, that gives you a sense as to how large our network is and how big our efforts are. Our company structure sets us apart as well. The way that we are set up as a business, certainly the, the amount of velocity we have and growth we have as a company, some amazing venture capital investors in our business, the support that we have, the board of directors and advisors we have on board with us here. It's just a great company and we invite you to come get to know us. Come to our website, spend some time, give us a call anytime, chat, email, however you prefer to communicate. We love speaking to people about this. This is what we do. Farmland. Wonderful. Carter, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to speak with me here today. Thank you, Stig. All right, guys. Make sure to follow the We Study Billionaires podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to this. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.